secrets of our backyards to the realities of the third world. We take a raw and real look into the challenges and the pursuits of social justice. Welcome to The Point. Hundreds of thousands of kids in the U.S. foster care system are unseen and suffering and left to feel like they don't belong. Today on the show, though, we have Brian Mavis, whose organization, America's Kids Belong, is working hard to dramatically improve these kids' experiences and change their outcomes by fighting for belonging in safe and loving families and supportive communities. America's Kids Belongs bring together communities, government entities, business leaders, influencers, and the communities around them to join in a life-changing movement where vulnerable kids don't just find belonging, but they thrive. Brian has written curriculum for the national campaigns such as Bono's One Sabbath Campaign and World's Vision Faith in Action. Brian and his wife Julie have two adult daughters and they have been foster parents for years and currently have a young man who is aged out of the foster care system as part of their home. I learned a lot from our conversation today and I can't wait to share it with you. Please help me by welcoming Brian Mavis. Thank you. Thank you for making the time. How Where are you calling from? I'm in Orlando. Oh, okay. And you're in Colorado? Yep. About an hour north of Denver. Um... Yeah, me and my my husband been living in Haiti in the Caribbean for uh, since 2000. Well, he's Haitian, so his whole life, but um, uh-huh. <laughs> since uh, 2012 for me. So we wow. Um, so we came back um, just in time for coronavirus. So it's been an interesting transition. Awesome. Yeah. What year was the, what year was the earthquake? Uh, 2010. Okay. Um, have you been? I've never been. No. Um, there's a book about Haiti that I love called years since I've read it. Mountains beyond mountains. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great book with Paul Farmer. He claims that there's a Haitian proverb. I don't know if you've ever heard it or not living there for 10 years, but I really, I loved it. It was God gives, but he doesn't share. Oh, I don't know that one. Which at first you're like, what? Yeah, totally. Um, But the idea of it is God's given us everything we need. Some of us hoard it. And and others are desperately poor, and it, he's. Can you guys share? Like <laughs> he uh, gives it to us who is choosing to be selfish. Yeah, great <laughs> book. A, he's a great writer. So Paul Farmer. There also is a documentary that just came out on Netflix called "Bending the Arc," which you might find interesting. But it's kind of about community-based public health. Got down yeah. somewhere here. Oh. Bending the Arc, Netflix. Arc, yeah. So it came out on Netflix now. It's a few years old, but it's good and, and incorporates the World Bank and foreign aid and different complex issues like that. So, but it's well done. Speaking of that kind of stuff, then I just a couple of days ago, my wife and I watched um, Tom Hanks' new movie, News of the World. Yes, I haven't seen it. Is it good? Uh, yeah. It okay. Is. And, and then, you know, like, you know, here we go again. It's about a kid who needs a family. And so. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. It reminded me of like the story of true grit kind of, but maybe that's not the, the old school like John Wayne. I love, I love Westerns. I really <laughs> like Tom Hanks, but, the, but it was like, oh, let's watch this. And it was like, gosh, can we not escape this <laughs> for a second? Okay. Got it. Got it. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. So that, it's interesting. So a little background. So 
as I talked about kind of my journey, um, I became a Christian uh, in 2010. Um, and then, like I said, moved to Haiti. But I, I think it's it's interesting how kind of the orphan crisis parallels uh, maybe the foster care you know system in the United States. And so for myself, and I think mo- most missionaries and most ministries, there's kind of this idea of like relief versus development, we might call it. And so like this idea of like, okay, like these kids don't have homes. Um, speaking about Haiti directly, let's just build some homes. And like that has obviously not become, you know, not the best answer. And so after living there, there's this statistic that gets thrown around a lot, which is that 80% of kids that are living in orphanages actually have families that are alive. And so it's just due to financial burden that they're relinquished to orphanages. And so it's like that throughout the developing world. So my focus the last 10 years has been piece of prevention of like, how can we support families so they don't have that pressure to feel like they have to give their kids up so they can have a meal and go to school and whatnot. Now being back in the United States, I'm getting a degree in community advocacy and social policy um, through a school of social work. So recently just really been turned back onto this idea of like, okay, there's this idea of justice throughout the developing world that I've been involved in. Um, but coming back to America, like, honestly, I have no, I don't know anything about the foster care system. And if I don't know anything, I feel like the majority of Americans definitely don't know anything. And so that's why I was excited to talk to you today and hear about like this very holistic approach that you all are doing. So a lot of our listeners are people who work in different areas of social justice, similar to me, maybe had some international experience the founders of the Point Foundation are already involved in foster care, um, have been for years. But yeah, we're just excited to like to understand it, to get to know it. I listened to it was it was a Zoom call you did, um, like how COVID will impact kids in foster care. But I really mm-hmm. like kind of the um, you know as a social work major, I love kind of the statistics and like the holistic approach to like why things are the way they are. So feel free to like pull any thing from those slides that you created and whatnot. Start with you though, how did you get involved in in this? Really the story starts in uh, my wife's heart. And Mm -hmm. when she was 16, she was uh, living in Southern California and her youth group went on a missions trip in Mexico. And she went, uh, you know, not expecting God to do anything. She was really more interested in ponchos and street tacos and some boy. And, uh, but she said she, she, as, as she was at an orphanage watching, you know, these kids play and stuff, gathering around her. And she said she heard the voice of God. It was inaudible, but it was a strong, clear um, impression that, and it was a three word challenge mm-hmm. or direction for her. And then it was care for orphans. Mm-hmm. And she said it made such a deep impression that she knew that was her purpose in life from that point on. At 16, that's impressive. Yeah. So then as a uh, young single woman, Mm -hmm. I did spend some more time in other orphanages in Mexico. And then, you know, we met, got married, and I ruined her life plan. And so (laughs) uh, we we were living in... um, we had done, then mar- married, had gone uh, and lived in Honduras, and she wow. worked at an orphanage there that, in this case, this orphanage, all the kids were orphaned uh, because they had 
been abandoned because they had cancer. And so it was an orphanage slash hospice. And then we moved back to the States, uh, had our own daughters, and then they were now like elementary school age and everything uh, from the outside looked good. But my wife was really struggling with her purpose in life and, and feeling lost and adrift and started really spending time with God again and came across, you know, this like care for orphans again. And she was like, how can I do that? You know, we're living in Southern California. There are, you know, there are, there are no kids to help. And then she just did ask, like, are there kids? Are there orphans in the United States? And that quickly led us down the path of foster care. So she was really leading the way. Like, can I help out? Can I be a, I want to be a foster mom. And it's like, and I was just saying, okay, okay. Then about a year into it, um, we moved to Colorado, re-signed up. And a couple things happened that really kind of changed the trajectory of um, what we were doing. We were, we had specialized in taking more training for medically fragile infants and really working on reunification. So two stories happen right next to each other. One is we have a, a little guy that we've taken from and raised since he was in the hospital. I've had him for nine months working towards reunification and we get a call from child welfare caseworker says we need to meet immediately. The plan has shifted drastically as of today. You know, something horrible happened. So I wasn't, I wasn't at home, but a caseworker came over, talked to my wife and just, you know, explained all this and said, he needs to be adopted. Would you adopt him? And my wife was thrown for a loop and said, I love him. And may, you know, but, but she goes, I have a question. What, what would happen if we said no to, no to adopt? Yeah. So this is in 2007, Northern Colorado. They said at that time, they said, well, he'll be fine. There's a, a line of people waiting for the babies. I just wish there was a line for all the other kids mm-hmm. was how she ended that sentence. And my wife was like, what? Like, what other kids? And she said, oh, there's 800 kids in Colorado who need adopting, but nobody wants them because they're not babies. So that night, my wife, you know, is telling me about this, we're lying in bed, and she's like, this is an injustice. Somebody needs to do something. And how could I not have known about this? How can, any, you know, how come nobody knows about this? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, then, um, I, I don't remember the time now. I mean, within months, it seems to me, I'm on staff at a church, and we li- live in one county, and I worked in another. I'm on staff at a church, and a child welfare worker calls me and says, can I meet with you? to talk about child welfare in our county. I said, sure. So a few days later, this woman named Cindy comes. I meet her in the lobby of our church, and she says, thanks for meeting with me. I've been I've been trying to meet with a pastor for three years. You're the first one to say yes. Wow. I had apologized that that had been her experience with the church. And she comes back to my office, and she says, Brian, I really just came here to tell you one thing. In the 27-year history of child welfare in this county, there has never been a day, not one day, where kids were not waiting for families to take care of them. And she said, I have a challenge for you. Help me change your weights. Help me recruit so many grown-ups that they're on the waiting list, not the kids. And at that moment really did sense that it wasn't just a challenge for her. That was, my wife had a three-word challenge from God. It was um, care for orphans. My Mm -hmm. three-word challenge was change your weights. And that Mm -hmm. three-word challenge changed my life. And 
over the next year, we worked on that, trying to help change your weights in our county, and we accomplished it. My wow. wife was also doing the same thing in the county we lived in. And so really kind of two counties really saw a significant increase in the number of families stepping up to foster and or adopt. And then one thing led to another. We, the, our state asked for more help. And what we did was give the kids face and a voice. We really worked through the churches and we were doing photographs, writing stories, and eventually got to video the older kids. Mm. And that made a significant difference. Over the next five years, the number of kids went from 800 down to into the 200s. And then about six years ago, we were challenged to go beyond Colorado. And now we're doing our work in other places. And we've added a lot more to what we do in order to make our work more holistic and uh, comprehensive and, 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 and sustainable. Because what did happen in that county, it didn't, it didn't last. I mean, people said, oh, man, this is hard. And they backed out. And yep. so um, we had to work on that. So at that point, had you started America's Kids Belong or was everything still through the church? We were like, it was, we had no intention and no idea that we were going to start a a nonprofit. It was at first a few years, it was just Brian and Julie helping. Okay. And then eventually when we got to the place where they were like, okay, you need to, in in order to video these kids, you've got to have a nonprofit and, you know, can't just work with you as Brian and Julie. So we created a nonprofit called Adopt Colorado Kids. And then, like I said, about six years ago, when we went beyond Colorado, we changed it to America's Kids Belong. So not only increasing the scope of the geography, but changing from exclusively adoption to belonging, which uh, was just a general and emotive term to might be prevention, reunification, all the above. And so tell, tell me a little bit about like what exactly the foster care system is like. I'm sure it's evolved over the years. And I'm sure after having a lot of conversations with a lot of average Americans, there's probably a, um, some common misconceptions or patterns that people believe. Can you talk to us a bit about like what those are and sure. maybe dispel some myths? You know, um, one of the things is this connection between kids in orphanages around the world and kids in America. And like, and we don't see them as having that similar connection. Part of what happened with my wife when she asked this question, are there, you know, kids in America need help? When she discovered foster care, she was learning, why are kids in care in the first place? Did they do, did they do something wrong? That kind of thing. It it was like, no, kids are in care because of what happened to them. And they said they're they're in care because of just abuse uh, was done to them, uh, extreme neglect or the abandonment. Parents are usually struggling with an extreme addiction or they're in jail, prison. Maybe there's prostitution involved with the one, you know, the mom. And when she was hearing that, we were hearing that, she had this flashback to this moment where she was on an orphanage in Mexico, and she asked the executive director there, how did all these kids' parents die? And he, he said, they're not dead. He said, these kids are here because of abuse, abandonment, neglect. The parents are in prison, or they're ex- extreme addiction problems. Maybe there's prostitution. She's like, oh, gosh, these are the same kinds of kids mm-hmm. all around the world. So in America, there's about, right now, there's uh, over 400,000 kids in foster care today. 
and about three quarters of those kids are on track towards the goal is to have these kids be uh, reunified with a biological parent or um, someone close, and, uh, an aunt or something like that. And then about a quarter of those kids, 100,000 plus, are on a different track. The reunification track either didn't work or it was just something was discovered that was so harmful to the child that reunification was um, said that can't happen. So that child now, parental rights have been terminated and they need a new forever adoptive family. I would say, I'm guessing right now, like the average age is nine but or 10, um, but it's from infant up through, you know, 17, 18 years old of these kids who need need families. And so, I, again, the one of the big myths uh, that people just kind of misunderstand is the kids that are in care are there because of like their own delinquency and that's not the case they're they're there because of their parents what happened because of their parents neglect and so the the idea that there are no orphanages in america this is also a myth well that and so in foster care we have in the united states a family based system that that's the goal of like okay so when a kid is removed from their family what the system is trying to do is place them in another family that has been gone through training we know is safe and that family will really work towards helping that child heal and do what's best for that child the problem is there aren't enough families so many of these kids what happens to them is uh, they get placed in group homes, you know, these institutions, and yeah. some are good. A lot of them aren't. Like, like, let me play a scenario for you. So this is like real. T- this well, this is happens every day. It happens in whoever's listening. It happens in your county. It's going to happen today. Three kids are removed from the home because um, the mom has um, stabbed the dad, and the dad is like it was a bad stabbing. And you know, the kids show up, and uh, there's blood all over them. And they're put in an emergency placement. Then eventually, like, they have to find a place for the children to stay for a longer term. And they're like, uh, we can't find any families that want all three. And so we're going to have to split them up. And the kids have all sorts of trauma. They have, like, what's happened at home. They have, um, now they've been removed from that home. And even though that was the right thing to do, that's another traumatic experience. And now they might end up losing everything else they know that's familiar their friends their school their teacher now maybe their siblings that's because there just aren't enough families to say we can do that the worst case scenario you know or the you know let's make the worst case scenario the kids are split up but they're split up within blocks of each other because and they can still see each other and the hope that there can be more than enough families there for these kids and then also more than enough families to support those families. We know that not every family can do this and not every family is needed to do it, but a lot of families quit who step up to be foster families. Uh, after a year, about half, well, like say 100 new families start today. Mm-hmm. A year from now, only 50 will be left. They're like, that was hard. And that keeps happening. Five years, you're down to about seven, eight families from the original hundred. So we're looking for a lot more families too, who will support and surround those families. So if you're a foster family, we would love to see a minimally three other families who say, we're going to foster adopt your family Mm -hmm. and be there for you. And that means like, you know, 
we'll help with laundry and babysitting and a meal and we'll just, you know, pray for you, all, all those things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think in the talk I was listening to this morning, I think you described it as like heroes, right? Like it kind of like uh-huh. breaks into like three sections. Expand. Yeah, the whole ecosystem of like foster care, who are the people in it? And I said, okay, if I could say it as simply and visually as possible, think about uh, a three ring target. And in the bullseye are the heroes and your instinct, you know, when people hear that is like, oh, that might be me. And it's like, no, no, no. The heroes are the kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are the wounded warriors. You know, they've been in battle and unfortunately that battle has been in their home, a place that was meant to protect them, but it became a war zone. And mm-hmm. so it's good to see these kids in that kind of way and good for you not to see yourself that way as some sort of, you know, savior. Mm-hmm. But the next ring out surrounding the heroes are the healers. And of course, that is uh, what a critical role. And the healers are the families who open up their hearts and homes to these kids. You know, traditional foster families maybe fo- uh, to adopt. But their whole thing is about Let's do what's best for this child. Let's protect this child. If it is reunification, we're going to work towards reunification. If this child needs a new forever family, that family might be ours. It might be someone else. But we're going to do whatever is best for this child and help them through their trauma. And we're going to learn as as a healing family, learn more about trauma and how to parent that and how to help de-escalate tough situations, how to... Uh, regulate kids who are emotions are operating out of fear. And then all those men, I meant, as I mentioned, that is a tough place and, and healers um, quit at an alarmingly high rate because they're not getting the support. And that's where the third sing, ring out is the helpers. So you got heroes, healers, helpers. The helpers are those families who surround and support the healer saying, we're here for you. As you foster and adopt this child, we're going to foster or adopt your family and, to, and, and help you with this child and lifting this load. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so if somebody's listening today and say maybe they're interested in, in either of those two areas of a support system, how do, how do people get involved? Where do they start? Really kind of the simplest way is to Google County name and then child welfare. Just type that in. And the reason is because every state and every county, they, they call their stuff different things. Huh. And so that should show up pretty fast. And then, you know, on that site, there should be a, you know, some sort of contact information. But what typically happens, and again, it's different everywhere, but this is very common, very typical, is that you'll be asked to attend an orientation meeting. It's just one meeting. It's probably an hour and a half, something like that. No strings attached. And it's to help you just understand uh, the, you know, the 30,000 foot view, what being a foster parent is. And then at that point, if you're interested in pursuing it further, you can sign up for their orientation for training to be certified. Okay. And that's typically, again, it's different every place, but typically it could be like a total of 24 hours. So it might be eight consecutive weeks, three hours 
at a time where you're learning about being a foster parent, you're learning about kids having trauma, and then then you're given a background check, and you don't need a squeaky clean record. Um, you're just making sure that you don't have a record of having hurt or harmed a child, mm-hmm. and then you'll ask to also be do um, something that's um, called a home study, where they literally come into your home, they look at that you have what it the home needs as far as bedrooms and beds and you know that you might have to buy a you know fire extinguisher those kinds of things but the home study also includes your um, more personal stuff they want to understand your relational dynamics and how you know if you're married how strong is your marriage and you don't have to be married to to be a foster parent Um, and typically an age limit is you, you probably have to be older than 21 and there's no end on the high end side. You know, they're just like, are you capable? And so I know foster parents who are in their young 20s, and I've known foster parents in their 70s. Um, wow. And then you're certified, and then, then you're on the list. And you also have a lot of influence, if not quite control, over who you're willing to foster. Is it like if you want to say, look, I want to do just very young children, or I want to do teenagers, or I want to do some age in between. I want to do just girls. I want to do just boys. I, you know, one at a time, open to siblings, all that has, you have a lot of control uh, over as well. Okay. If you're like, I don't think it's right for me, or I'm not at the right space season of my life, and you go to that orientation, that do not opt out and say that means I can't do anything. Mm-hmm. Definitely go and put yourself into that helper camp. Mm-hmm. A lot of these places don't have something that is like organized and official, but just let them know I want to support a family. Okay. And uh, so if you don't know of one, I would start with ask your church Does your church have any families that you could support? And if they don't know or they don't have any, then ask your child welfare. Mm hmm. Yeah, that, that's really helpful. And I'll be sure to include um, some of the links uh, to, to your website and other resources for people too, of how they can get involved. What are some of the challenges that you personally have faced over the years of doing this? I think a lot of our conversations with people who work in areas of social justice is the idea of burnout, the idea of compassion fatigue, the idea, you touched on it a bit earlier, the, the kind of God complex, the savior. We don't know those things, right? Like we can be aware of them, like logistically, practically, but like when, when we're living them out and it can take a while to come out. Um, but when you work in human services, there's kind of this pressure cooker that happens where like all of the junk that's inside of your heart kind of comes out and to the surface and you have to deal with it. So talk to us a little bit about how you've managed to stay healthy or what are some things like if it did come out, how did you deal with it and and advice you have for other people that might be experiencing burnout? For sure. One thing is between placements, we would take a break. Like we wouldn't like, okay, this child is now going back to the home and we're going to now have a new kid or kids in our home within the next week. We would be like, we need a break for a couple months, like to um, our own biological children, are they doing okay, that kind of thing. And they were always the first ones to say, let's do it again. Mm-hmm. And we started when they were in elementary school and now they're young adults and my oldest daughter is a foster parent to mm-hmm. two 
little ones. Uh, so take breaks, make sure you have a support system and you got to be an advocate for yourself. So make sure that, you know, whether it's neighbors or friends or relatives, your church that you do say, Hey, we're, we're taking, we're lifting a heavy load. Could we have, uh, are a few people willing to lift a little bit, uh, for us? So the respite care is huge. So, you know, respite care is a fancy word for babysitter, but there's usually special qualifications needed. You can't just get a normal babysitter. They do need background checks and that kind of thing. So a family needs to be willing to put themselves through a little bit of uh, evaluation to qualify to watch those kiddos. But that's a huge, makes a huge difference. Mm. Um, churches can provide like um, like a monthly foster parents night out kind of deal just kind of think about like a four-hour vacation bible school just for foster kids and foster mm-hmm. families and give the parents a little bit of a break the other thing is really understanding trauma and so reading books about trauma and watching videos um maybe like one that is has broad appeal right now is a book called the body keeps the score yeah reading that and understanding how deep trauma reaches. I mean, it's cellular, but mm-hmm. also that there's hope uh, for he- healing. And the first advice I would get when you're thinking about parenting a child with trauma is to explore your own. Mm-hmm. And you might say, well, I had a good childhood. So so maybe your thing doesn't really qualify as legit trauma, but you still got junk and you still like there's you have triggers and there's things that make you yell and, and and like what is going on like figure out your own stuff i believe that and i know trauma is starting to get more attention and i'm really grateful for that i think um it is a uh it could be a very valuable um new knowledge and insights into human hurt and human behavior and human healing it could be profound. And I would say the other thing is we need these kids. It's a shame and the world shouldn't be this way that they've been harmed like they have. Stepping into your their lives, they can help you become a better human and you, as you help them become a, a better one as well and help you become more empathetic and better at relationships and all those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great advice. One of the things I wanted to make sure we touched on was the idea of prevention. So the kind of um, misunderstanding, I had a conversation yesterday with somebody who works in the juvenile justice system and kind of this idea where maybe people think about felons um, as adults, but nobody realizes that, you know, teenagers turn into adults and into <laughs> either functioning or non-functioning members of society. And so talk to us a little bit about that cycle that needs to be broken from kids who have experienced trauma might not have the support system they need and how that, how that plays out into the future for not just them, but for all of us who are impacted by it. Yeah. You know, I've done uh, a lot of research into this area and I through that kind of discovered that foster care is not just this heart issue of these kids needs family. I think it's a smart issue. It's, it's very strategic and the reason why is a lot of these kids who are in the system who end up aging out, not connected to a family, not having their trauma really paid attention to, they are far, far more at risk to 10 other social wounds. So 
so let me just kind of go through this. First one we just talked about, they have twice the rate of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder uh, compared to veterans of war. And they also have kind of a, a unique kind of trauma. It's now being referred to as complex uh, PTSD, meaning that their PTSD wasn't a one-time event. It was prolonged and it was done to them, not by a, a, an enemy or a stranger, mm-hmm. but by someone who was meant to care for them. Mm-hmm. Secondly, um, they're four times more likely to attempt in, or commit suicide than their peers. Third, they're the most vulnerable uh, of group uh, to be trafficked sexually. A majority of kids who are rescued from sex trafficking uh, have come from foster care. About uh, a third of them uh, struggle with uh, drug addiction. Half admit to using illegal drugs after leaving the system. Uh, Less than half, number five, will graduate from high school. Uh, Number six, at least a third of them will be living below the poverty line. Seven, nearly half of them will be homeless within a couple years of aging out. Eight, about half the boys by the age of 23 will have spent some time behind bars. Nine, unplanned pregnancies. Three times as many girls compared to the national average will have a child before their 19th birthday. And then 10th, they're the most vulnerable group to losing their own kids to the foster care system, repeating the cycle. So I mentioned my daughter is a foster mom right now. She has a child and that child's biological mom grew up in foster care. Mm-hmm. It's just the cycle repeats. Mm-hmm. So like, thank God for organizations that are helping people who are adults who are struggling the suicidality or trafficking or addiction or homelessness. And and I'm sincere and thank God for those groups. But wouldn't it be smart to go upstream and and help these kids have a family and deal with this stuff so that those kids will not need those organizations 10 years from now. Mm -hmm. So kind of comes down to a good family is better than a good program. Mm. That's well said. So we covered a lot of complex topics today. What is one thing you would want listeners to take with them from this conversation? That everyone can do something and that explore what your next step could be and then you know follow that path. One is you might be surprised at how brave you can be. I love this quote. It says, ask Jesus what he wants and then be brave. But just take your next baby step and do do something. Just don't sit on the sidelines and do nothing. And uh, like if you uh, work at a company or own a company or have some influence, maybe your company can treat a foster family like you would a military family and like give some sort of discounts. We know car dealerships do discounts to foster families and pizza places and laundry that. services and all that kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So there's something your business could do. If you have influence in your church, get your church involved. Have your church do a parents' night out. Have your church just find out who in your church is already doing this and ask how they're doing. Support families or recruit more families. Find out what you can do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. My advice. That's great advice. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of that with us today. Those are some important things I've been excited to learn about myself. 
and happy to always become more educated and um, encouraged really that there are ways you're, you're absolutely right. There are ways that all of us can get involved um, regardless of our stage of life. Yes, for sure. Cool. Well, thank you again for your time. Awesome. Thanks, Callie. As always, all relevant links will be in show notes at lapointfoundation.org. You can get in contact with Brian at info at amkidsbelong.org, visit their website at amkidsbelong.org, or follow them on social media, um, Instagram and Facebook, our American Kids Belong. Be sure to follow us at LaPointe Foundation, P-O-I-N-T-E, on Instagram and Facebook as well. Thanks for joining us, and until next time, keep on fighting for justice.